isolated at the laboratory Where things are not as they seem Dr. Heckel wishes nothing more desperately than To fulfill all his dreams Letting loose with a scream in the dead of night As he's breaking new ground Trying his best to unlock all the secrets But he's not sure what he's found Dr. Heckel is his own little guinea pig Cause they all think he's mad Sets his sights on the search of a lifetime And he's never, never sad Whoa, it's off to where he goes In the name of science and all its wonders This is the story of Dr. Heckel and Mr. Giant Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, we have made it through the Eagle Parade. Nothing, no murderous activities. No, it was fun. Spilled into Bucks County. Yeah, I watched it. I didn't go to it. I watched it. I, I watched it very, I, I saw some Facebook Live. My second son was there and uh, his family and they, it looked fun. But, you don't uh, send the firstborn to that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you don't do that. <laughs> no, the, the line of succession must be protected. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. When, at your uh, at your recent installation service at a, at your church, uh, Lindy texted me. While I was downstairs with you and the di- dignitary. She said, "Bill's clone." I meant his son just walked in. <laughs> that would be that yeah. would be Ben. Which well, I guess that was yes, Ben. Bad, Ju- yeah, Ben Junior. Yeah. yeah, no, Ben Junior's the grandson. I'm sorry. I could no, ben, yeah. ben Junior. Ben the first. Ben Junior was just going pop up the whole time. No, pop that, up. that was actually. No. Oh, wait, who was doing pop up? That was Victor. Victor. Victor is my is the youngest one. At least for the next six months. Many boars out there. There's a new one coming. There's I like one, it. Yeah, I know. I tell we're going to have to go, probably next spring, we're going to have to go raiding in order to expand the territory. <laughs> like the Vikings. <laughs> yeah, we got too many. The lineage is grand, so. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's farming or raiding. Yeah, we're more raiders. Raiders. <laughs> yeah. raiders. yeah, yeah, yeah. So our... our Two podcasts ago, lots of lots of feedback. Got a lot of feedback. Lots of feedback. Today, we want to continue to talk about Reformation era. Things. Yeah, and, and it actually our that's uh, era is actually what Ted Kennedy used to say between era, 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 era. <laughs> this Bill era, era. It's my Ted Kennedy. Yeah, that's, good, not, that's, that's that's not a bad. Stolen one. from Howard Stern, actually. But so we want to talk about something from that era. Era. Well, right. We've <laughs> we've actually. <Era. laughs> The uh, the pre conversation post conversation has been very lively and rich between you and I, and so we feel are, these are our human conversations. These are our human conversations, and you too can be part of the right. human conversation for a major donation. But at any rate, so uh, one of the things we were thinking, and, and again, I think the Limbeck stuff also stimulated. Oh yeah, yeah very much yeah. so. So one of the things we were thinking about in terms of the difference between Calvin and Luther, and we we thought about you know talking about the 20th and 21st century heirs of that, but we thought, let's just go to the source. But, but there are so many. <laughs> there are so many. So, <laughs> so many heirs. Heirs or eras. Era, era. Eras. Yeah, but at any rate, 
So we think a lot of the issues around Christology. Now, the other thing that's interesting, I think, yeah, if we're going to be honest about history, uh, the history of Christology, Chalcedon didn't really settle anything. I mean, no. it, it's the formula, but it was a formula built out of compromise, and hardly anyone really liked there, except maybe Leo. <laughs> Leo liked it, but uh, Pope Leo. But what you're saying, it's pretty much going to be like anything. It's bipartisan in this area. That's right. <laughs> but as we know, the history of the post, well, we... we asked, Do you think Pastor Jeffries in First Baptist, is it Dallas, the Baptist guy, is he more, you think, in the historian, Cerulean, you know, where do you think his leanings are on these things? I think he's probably at a scene. Paula, Paula White? <laughs> Paula White. Paula White. She would be a Christian scientist. I think that's where she's at. Yeah. She would be the Gnostic Jesus. Christian science no, is would... great until you get a deep laceration. <laughs> and then when you're saying, well, so Or just... a major infection. Yeah. And yeah. then the immaterial yeah, of suffering is... It's a little, it's a little tough. It gets a little tough. To which uh, Mary... Was it Mary Baker Eddy? Eddie? Mm-hmm. To which she would say, era, era. <laughs> yeah, I would. I think even, I mean, to call Paula White a Gnostic would be... An insult to Gnostics. An insult to So I don't, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know Jeff, Reverend Jeffrey or Pastor Jeffrey's theology enough, his Christology enough to make a statement about it. To call Paula Abdul a Gnostic. Paula Abdul. Uh, the jury is out. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, kinda, I mean, I, I like some of her songs. I liked her on American Idol. I mean, I liked, I liked, I liked her songs until she started singing them. Right, I like yeah, that too. I like that. I like the dancing. With she's, the she's, she's, not, a good she's, dancer. she's not a singer. She's a good dancer. No. So we're so we're talking about Paula Abdul. But Cal Calcedon, Calcedon. How do you prefer? I go back and forth. It's like Augustine Augustine. I, I usually say Calcedon. All right, let's say Calcedon. All right. It's like that's how you know at, at a wedding if you have the Lord's Prayer. How ecumenical it is by how many things people say. You get a real ecumenical wedding if at the Lord's Prayer it's a cacophony of difference. I always just when I'm, if I when, when in doubt I just go trespasses regardless. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So do you do you say as Jesus taught us parentheses using trespasses? <laughs> no, I don't put the parentheses. <laughs> I love those when they're in the bullet. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, what we're part of what we're going to say is that uh, in spite of. I, my affirmation of the Chalcedon formula, uh, to say that that actually solves it is is overstating what the event did. And so the truth of the matter— And you would say, like, let's say, you know, just like if we're thinking about—I was thinking about divisions from parties, but I'm trying to make a political analogy. There's so, there's divisions with all the parties. Right, 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 right. But, like, let's just say two parties and it's a compromise. The parties are right. Like, the Nestorian folks— They who, totally lost. Right. Who would go with— t- who wanted something like two natures and two persons and two persons, right? right Which right. seems like a schizophrenic Jesus, but reads parts of the gospel. Some people right. think this is a schizophrenic Jesus. Well, it was trying. It was trying to protect the divinity, right? Yeah. And then you have the Cerulians, right? Who want to have a much closer relationship between. Yeah, they, want, they want God dying on the cross, right? Yeah. I think I want that. I do too. But right. that, but. What you do is you push you push the language and you push the image. So that tends to be more of a monophysite kind of perspective, and um, so and so, which would mean one nature, not one, two natures. Yeah, yeah. But basically, so so an historian's going to look at that and say it's monophysite, and Cerulean's are going to say anything less than that is you got really two 
two persons, two natures, and the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, and I, I do think, you know, there's a sense where, um, matter of fact, uh, something that's going to be published, I, you know, in the next Mockingbird, uh, Lord willing, is, uh, you know, if some of the next issues on humor. And one of the things I said, one of the reasons people have trouble seeing Jesus with a sense of humor is because there is there is a kind of, historically, from a piety perspective, and because of our piety about Jesus being divine, we tend to have trouble, I think, with the humanity. Now, again, Modern liberalism, you know, kind of throws the divinity out. Not all of it, but you know what I mean. That's their problem. But I think a lot of good Christians have trouble with the humanity part of Christ, and that was an ongoing issue, certainly after Chalcedon. And the Lutheran-Calvinist divide, in some levels, reanimates that um, Alexander versus Antioch debate about that. I had something really funny to read you. Did you? I yes. Like, I like well, that. I don't. It's actually not funny, but it's um, it's from a book, "Only a Joke Could Save Us," which is I did an interview with this guy. Who's I mean, the guy is fantastic, but I'm not going to be able to find the. Uh, can you just tell me it? Well, I kind of want to read it to you if I can, but this is so anticlimactic. But I guess I'm looking in the index. Talk among yourselves here. Talk right? among yourselves out there for a while. This this is a smoke them if you got them. Yeah. Really um, Oh, yeah, here we go. Okay. I, I, I looked in the wrong reference. Um, this is so great. This is so great. Todd McGowan is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Hegel is funny because Christianity, despite the absence of cosmic priests, is a philosophically comic religion. It emerges through the unity of the infinite and the finite. And it, it is this insistence on the infinite becoming finite that renders Christ a ridiculous figure. His ridiculousness is inextricable from his status as the transcendent made lacking. The absolute seriousness of so many Christians about the faith is often an attempt to protect themselves against its comedy. In reality, proper Christians should spend much of their time laughing at Christ if they want to avoid blasphemy. This is Hegel's great insight, one that he shares with filmmaker Louis Buñuel. Uh, you know, I, you know the two things that come to mind, first of all, Tertullian, uh, it's because it's absurd, I, I believe. And uh, I don't think Tertullian was. I wouldn't think he's a funny guy, though. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't. No, he never struck to be funny. But he he has biting sarcasm. He has a he's witty. He has a wit. But I don't think you'd want to. Uh, you wouldn't. He would not do stand up comedy. And the other thing for me, I think that's part of what Chesterton talks about the romance of orthodoxy. Yeah, because it, it's in some levels it's a, it's a. I mean, there's a kind of absurdity to love a love story anyway. You know, I mean, falling in love is 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 a certain kind of absurdity. A certain kind of love has its own reasons, if you would. And I do think both of those things are true. I think it's funny, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to, you know, we've spent 2,000 years, not quite 2,000 years, but uh, coming up with respectable ways to say it and, you know, trying to make, feel ourselves, you know, make ourselves uh, respectable in the academy or whatever. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I mean, depending on your particular tradition, I think one of the reasons we want to go to the prayer breakfast because that gives us, you know, that gives us a certain kind of respectability or one of the reasons we want to be recognized in the academy because that gives us a certain kind of respectability. By the way, Trump kind of weighed in at the prayer breakfast. On your side on loser controversy says, What is Jesus make us for? As the Bible says, for good works. <laughs> Ephesians created in Christ. For the good works work. that he's prepared for yeah. us. Well we're not gonna we're not gonna have Trump do all that. <laughs> we're not, he's not a fellow. Well, I mean there is that that, that verse that, that verse is pretty important. <laughs> that he prepared for us, yeah. 
any rate, but um, no. So I'm part of getting back to this. So I think, um, I think two, arguably the two greatest Protestant theologians and thinker. Can we go back? What pause though on the humor thing? Yes, I wanted to say that I was thinking more Iron Man three. I think it was than Tertullian. In that, <laughs> what's funny about Iron Man three is Tony Stark is the guy who Which has. Which one the, is Iron Man three? I get. Uh, it's the one where the guy with the fire, uh, inferno kind of powers, and Iron Man's under all kind of assault. He basically has to take refuge in this little midwestern town and get this kid to help him. And he's the most powerful guy. It sounds like my life story. Go exactly. Ahead. It's, yeah. He's almost in the Hotel California. But then it's funny because it's, it's the McGowan's theory of humor is like lack and abundance. So Stark has this abundance of gifts and technology and influence, but it's not, but now he's also in a place of total lack. And so he's actually trying to be Tony Stark with none of his resources. So he's making this kid, this little kid kind of like his intern and stuff. And so it's, that's, what's funny about it. Right. And that, and what I think what McGowan's getting at is, this is what's hilarious. And by, by the way, Adam Morton has chimed in on our Facebook feed saying, Haman, who I'm working on learning, not a lot of funny guys in the 18th century, but he was hilarious and insisted that Jesus was at the center of it. And McGowan thinks, McGowan, who grew up in a kind of conservative Protestant home, is married to a Jewish woman. He's, he writes in the book about why it's interesting that Jews have this great sense of humor comedically and Christians struggle with it and they shouldn't because at the center of the faith is, according to his theory of humor, the perfect comic figure because it, it it's God all powerful walking around with disciples that seem like the worst adults in school class in history. I mean, that's it. Just yeah. every scene is funny. No, it, I, I agree. I think, you know, for instance, I just uh, preached last week on Mark chapter two. I'm the head of the lectionary and you know, Jesus giving the talk and the roof falling down on his head. It's funny to me, you know, he's, you know, where the, where the four guys, open, you know, the, they drop down the paralytic. That's, that's very funny. We had, by the way, on Facebook, we just had an Iron Man 3 reference about the bad guys in that movie are literally wounded American war. Yeah, that is true. That is true. That yeah. is true. Well, yeah. That, Wait, is that? Yes, that is. That is that well, movie. Well, that makes it. I don't. So I never. I did not see that one. And that makes me not want to watch it either. So at any rate. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating. Film. All right. We're trying to get to Luther and Calvin. By the way, Howard Stern says, and I agree, Robert Downey Jr. should play Iron Man forever. He's like, never give up the role. Do the next, what was the movie about Winston Churchill? Which you know, uh, The Darkest was, Hour. Oh, with uh, Gary Oldman. He's like, the next movie should be Tony Stark goes back in time to meet Gary Oldman as Churchill. He's like, just remake every movie. Because <laughs> <laughs> they keep increasing the paycheck. I tend to agree. You know what I like? One of my favorite movies of his uh, was his chaplain. I mean, the movie was flawed in some ways, but his chaplain was brilliant. I hadn't seen the movie. That's, that's an amazing movie. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, 
any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, John Schneider, Steve Lipless, and Charlotte Donlin. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. So back to Christology and the, the, the infinite and the the finite and McGowan. But you were you were talking Christology. Yeah. In other words, one of the things you can talk about the Lutheran Calvinist tension is um, around the area of Christology. And, and even it probably informs the sacramental differences between the two of them. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things I think is interesting that Calvin is concerned about, and he tries to maintain tension, and I think, you know, you and I were talking about, this is, uh, you know, he got one of the things that Calvin consistently got accused of by his Catholic opponents was being an Arian. Matter of fact, he and Farrell were doing one of the, uh, the Lucerne disputation or whatever. I, I think I love Switzerland. And by Arian, we're not talking about the people who have... There's good people on that side. Good <laughs> people on that side. No, we're talking about somebody. We're not who, talking about certain Trump supporters. Yeah, we're, so. we're talking about uh, no the Aryan uh, Christ, Christological debate. Debate. So, yeah. so people thought he really thought that Christ well, was less than less than yeah less the than the Father. Well, yeah, he was not equal. He was not was co- he was not co-substantial or homoousius. And one of the things I think is really interesting about this is, and there's one particular French author that I was reading, and I can't remember his name, but he said that that was part of Luther's Christology was in part built on that kind of, you know, that that was a charge that the Reformers, particularly being Biblicist, had to deal with. And so I think part of, you can, I think, I actually think uh, Calvin is a pretty careful Chalcedon his, his Christology, I know sometimes you get Calvinists get accused of being historians, and maybe they do sometimes lean that way. But I think Calvin's pretty careful to balance the, you know, the Chalcedon formula. I just switched the way I pronounced it. And this idea where he constantly wants to say, emphasize that there's distinction, but not separation. That's his Christology, but it's also his view of the sacraments. Well, it's also what Chalcedon or Chalcedon says itself. See, now we've gotten in our own heads. Now we're now we don't, we don't know but that's what it, it says, too. Yeah, right. No, right. So there's a sense where, and of course, this, he, I mean, this is kind of the concern of the humanist, right? Where you don't want to mix spiritual and material. That's part of why you get a, a purely memorial sacrament uh, out of these Zwinglian folks. Um, but Calvin seems to not want to do that. I mean, Calvin arguably is a middle position. And I think part of it is because I think his Christology is better developed uh, than Swinley's, and I think, uh, and I think he's more influenced. Is by... Is that high praise? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's like when people go, Hannity's Hannity's really extreme, but yeah. O'Reilly when O'Reilly, but O'Reilly. I mean, I, I listen, yeah. I watch for O'Reilly. <laughs> you know, I disagree with Swinley so much, but I do think he's a, he's an easy whipping post. I, I I I mean, the man did die trying to minister to his people, so I I, I have respect for that. <clears throat> But I do think with Calvin, Calvin is more influenced by Luther than Zwingli. That's obvious. But I think Calvin 
I mean, I, I'm not saying Calvin's consciously trying to find a middle way. I think Calvin does his own project. But the end result, I think, is a middle way. Now, I think a lot of Calvinists end up going to Zwingli and Root, but I think Calvin's view of the sacrament, and I think it really flows from his Christology. And um, and I think I think there's, I think partially too, is, you know, he has a lively doctrine, a more developed doctrine of the Holy Spirit, arguably, than Luther does. And I think, so I think that's part of what's... Um, What's going on there with 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 Calvin's view of of wanting to you know he wants to say there's something going on you know because there there's a distinction so the bread and the the wine are not uh, the physical body of Christ but he does want to say that there's such a close linkage there I think he uses language I don't know exactly his language but the imp- the impetus of his language is the the thing signified. <clears throat> And the sign are are very closely linked in a way that's that's where he puts the mystery. Is that right? Is that how you'd read? Yeah, it? I mean Brian Garrish says that there are three views in his book Grace and Gratitude. That there's a kind of memorialist view, which is you know this is just a symbol. Wendley, that's a little There's a parallelist view, which he he actually attributes to Augustine: visible sign, invisible grace. There's well, and two. also, and I think Calvin. We, Calvin appropriates the language of Augustine. And he actually has an instrument, he has his third category, I'm blanking it, but it's something like what he thinks Calvin's view is, that is something more like, it's more than just parallel, It's it, there is a linkage. But I mean, what I think, well, what Calvin does argue is that we are made present to Christ through the Spirit. So, you know, lift up your hearts, right? We lift them up to the Lord. So for Calvin, well, for all, for okay, for let's just say for most of the people involved in such discussions. Christ's risen body is with the Father, right? It's at the right hand of the Father. Right. It's in, in the place that God dwells. So a human body can't be everywhere. It can only right. be in one place, right? So if you really want to keep the, the right, as right. the tradition does, yeah. the natures, what's proper to the nature. So right. so in the in the Chalcedonian tradition, you to say, you could say, uh, the, the Son of God suffered, and you could say Jesus saves. What you're really saying is, in the former, the suffered is, well, really the human nature suffered, but we use grammatical things to to say that. But really, the divine nature didn't suffer, the human nature suffered. Uh, and to say Jesus saved as well, really only God can save. So to say that the, to say Jesus saves is proper, but only to the degree to which the divine nature is acting there, right? And so, if you're a medieval Catholic, and you can say that... Which on some days I am. Which, of course. Yeah. Medieval, I and mean, that's a little late for you, but... Medieval yeah, for you, but, early medieval. Yeah. But it, it would be to say, well, it's just a mystery, and that we have an ordained priesthood, and when you recite the liturgy, yes, it is a mystery it needs the priesthood to recreate every time. It's a miracle that... The local presence becomes present here. Well, then it also becomes a sacrifice. Right. Yeah, right, which is problematic. So for the, most of the Reformers, like, especially because not just because of the rereading of Scripture, but because they're challenging the priesthood and, well, sort right. of, and that kind of metaphysical capacity imported into the priesthood. You know, the two most important books in the Reformation from the Bible, we would all guess Romans. But What's what, my other choice? Well, the, other, the second most important book is Hebrews. Right. I'd say 50-50. <laughs> and exactly what you just said there, because there does not need to be any other mediator. Yeah, one sacrifice. There's yeah. one sacrifice, there's one mediator, so we don't need a mediator other than Christ. Now, <coughs> excuse me. 
<clears throat> I just get all choked up about that. I like that. But that does, I mean, that blows up. I mean, that blows up all kinds of systems. Um, and then not only is it a theological issue, but it, 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 it affects one's whole approach to life and dying, actually. That's, sometimes I think we underestimate the radical nature of how life changed because of the Reformation spirit. And, and it also understands why it was such a threat. I mean, particularly, you know, I mean, we tend often historically, we tend to even look at the French religious wars from the politics of it. But the disruptive nature of what really, and, and, and in France, is really the Calvinistic. I mean, Calvin has the greater influence in France than, than Luther. The Lutheran influence is there early. It's, it's a pretty remark because it, it, it does the implications of there only being one mediator. And also the fact is there doesn't need to be all this stuff, or all this ceremony around death because, you know, you're to be departed from this body is to be with Christ. That, that, that just blows up so much of even the rhythms of not only, well, religious life, but how one's looked at living and dying. And, and in, in an age where death was constantly surrounding you, and you can, all, you can say that a lot of the Reformation issues were around, how do I deal, how do I find comfort in, you know, in, in death? Uh, it's a pretty remarkable sea change that, um, in some levels, you can understand why it kind of, the radical nature, why it helped birth the modern world. You can also decide, you can also understand why, I mean, you know, the majority of the Christian world is still Roman Catholic, so it didn't, it didn't win, yeah, in one level. By the way, can we pause for uh, another, straight from Orlando, a uh, comment uh, from Jared Jones, who says that, from the Facebook live feed, that you're spot on that many Calvinists go more towards Zingley. So one of the ruling elders in his former um, church, which is PCA, once said they didn't want to do weekly communion because it makes it less special. Now, on that sort of analogy, if marriage, if the if the actual wedding ceremony is the initiatory right and the and consummation of the union right. is a renewal right, does he make sure his own marital union conjugation is only once a week? Because yeah. any more than that would make it less special. Yeah. No, no one ever, no one ever argues about sex that way. Exactly. I just, or <laughs> well, I, maybe no man ever argues about sex that way. I'll tell you, if if they would buy that argument, you'd ha- you'd start having PCA churches having communion three, four times a week. <laughs> There we go. Link them. Link them. Yeah, exactly. Well, Paul does in Ephesians. Yeah. The mystery I'm, I'm speaking. Mystery I'm speaking. Jared, of tell that. Uh, tell that. Uh, elder. To By the way, Jared, if you want us to come down and talk to, and make that point for you, this elder, yeah, we're the very road trip. Road trip to exactly. Florida. We'll come. We'll do that. Although Orlando would not be the first place I'd want to go. No, but you know, it's, but it's, we'll, we'll swing by. That Bible museum is there though, <laughs> in the Bill Maher movie. So I, I would do. Yeah. So I think that you know it's interesting if the if you probably have. Calvin and Zwingli and the medieval Catholics agreeing on one point about the local presence. Yeah. Luther wants to say, if, if we have the Cerulean party winning, let's go all the way and say that actually what we can say something like the son of God suffers or that Jesus saves because by nature of the union of the person, Jesus really is divine and human. Yeah. Not just, so they're not, this is, I think Colin Gunn makes this point, you know, when you start saying, well, the nature does this thing, but natures don't act persons right. act right exactly. like so so this is the the problem and i think part of the the lutheran option of of this consubstantiation which we talked about a couple of podcasts ago is actually coming from this trying to push the chalcedonian formula further down and to say that that basically this is a real uh god really becomes incarnate and in this in such that not only can god uh Take on not only can God. Well, it's funny because I actually think 
without something like this, right? You know, mm-hmm. Bonhoeffer's famous comment in light of the Shoah and, and, the, and the Third Reich was only the suffering God can help. Right, uh, right. Uh, one could argue that, that unless something like what Luther's arguing for, and we could say, well, maybe we wouldn't want to argue it quite that way or something. Unless something like that is true, there are only Eucharistic implications, but this the suffering God might be at stake. Yeah, and I think what Luther um, personifies is that Alexandrian spirit, what they didn't want to lose, and whether it be, you know, Athanasius or whatever, or then Cyril, you're talking about Cyril too, is this idea of the radical identification, the radical identification of God with the human condition. And I think that drove, and, and, and you have to, and, and it's one of the reasons why Nestorian interpretations of that Chalcedon formula basically kept the church divided, you know, in other words, because people were not willing to give up that central, that central idea of the piety and the central kind of mystical understanding of what's going on in the cross. And I actually think that this idea of the suffering God is, is in many ways closer, you know, to a biblical, if you, if you, you know, in some levels, you don't have to be embarrassed about the anthropomorphic stuff in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. If you have a God who radically identifies with his creation, I mean, what kind of immortal, invisible deity makes you know Abraham and David friends? <laughs> I mean, what kind of immortal? Well, a lot of normal humans. Would immutable, yeah, right. I mean, how <laughs> does ordinary people walking around? Yeah, you know, how make... does the immutable one wrestle with Jacob? You know, and not win in the first minute. So, I think that to me, you know, the existential appeal to Luther. We, you know, I mean, you know, our critique of Luther or my critique of Luther should not. I have. I shall and I will. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, re- regardless of some of the disastrous implications of certain aspects of Lutheranism, uh, the, the I think I think Luther yeah, I, I, again the I mean some levels Luther's theology and again he's a first you know he's got a first rate mind but the biblical studies kind of follows a little bit after or it's 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 simultaneous with his own existential spiritual crisis and so um and he you know he doesn't really learn greek to you know he doesn't become a good greek scholar until after this insights happen i mean melanthon then helps him with that so there's a sense or he becomes a better greek Augustine scholar. never became a great greek scholar so. no no it was a horrible life well if you know i have to like almost everybody and this is horrendous about pedagogy from the ancient world all the way up through the early you know you know the the, the even the reformation time you know, if you're getting, if you have somebody, if your if your teacher has a rod and is beating the crap out of you, no wonder you was hard to do your declensions. <laughs> you know, what a horrendous way. But what I'm saying is, I think Luther's insight about the radical identification of God with humanity, um, to me, his regardless whether his Christology, you know, floats a little bit over to the Monophysite position, it's the same dynamic insight, I think, that has certainly fed a large portion of the faith and that, that the mystery of, of God with us and for us is something that I think continues to be appealing about Luther's project. Our next episode may have to be about Karl Barth on these issues, but I'd like to conclude with a reading from, well, I mean, it's not, it's not scriptural, but it's, it's a commentator from Tomas Halik, so which we've read before, but because I think that the death of God stuff, it's funny because Nietzsche is picking up off Hegel, but Hegel's picking up off Luther, who put in the hymn, God is dead. I mean, this is very... Jung mentioned somewhere that the indigenous tribes of primitives still living in an ancient way of life reconciled with nature 
and original human nature distinguishes between small, private dreams and big dreams that are of significance for the entire tribe. I've always thought of Nietzsche's scene with the herald of God's death in the gay science as the record of a dream, but a big dream with a prophetic significance for our entire tribe. He's talking about the whole Western project. At the same time, I felt that the message God is dead is only the first sentence which must be followed by another, a second sentence, in the same way that Good Friday was an important message to us from God, but it was not the final one. God is dead. That sentence uttered at the end of the 19th century continued to fascinate for the next hundred years. Maybe it was not only a sentence about God and against God, but also one containing something of God's message to us. A God who has not endured death is not truly living. A faith that does not undergo Good Friday cannot attain the fullness of Easter, Crises of faith, both personal and in the histories of culture, are an important part of the history of faith, of our communication with God, who is concealed and returns, again, to those who do not stop waiting for the unique and eternal word to speak to them once more. Amen. Have a good weekend, everybody. Be safe.